48-hour extension to the ceasefire, but will it make any difference long-term? Fresh calls for a new European army, but not everyone wants one. A hundred years ago, the tank arrived to change the outcome of war, but does the British army still need it today? And fat is a military issue. How US troops are losing the new battle of the bulge. Efforts are still being made to try to get humanitarian aid to rebel-held areas of Syria. The United States and Russia have agreed to extend the ceasefire, which began on Monday night, by 48 hours. It's hoped both the Syrian army and rebel groups will pull back enough to allow aid convoys through. I'm joined by Hamish de Bretton Gordon, the former army officer who now advises NGOs in Syria, as well as BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hamish de Bretton Gordon, good to speak to you today. Uh, this week, you spoke at the all-party parliamentary group Friends of Syria. Anas Ablada, the president of Syrian National Coalition, was there too. What was his take on the ceasefire? Um, well, well, first of all, can I just uh, uh, talk a second about Joe Cox? It was her uh, APPG. It was the first one run since she was so tragically murdered a few months ago. And I think, as President uh, Anas said, uh, on Tuesday, she did a tremendous amount to help the people of Syria uh, more than most. Mm. Uh, when it comes on to the current ceasefire, I think the, the President of the Syrian National Council, like all of us, very much welcome it, as we did the ceasefire in February. However, there are a number of, of factors and issues that, that are of great concern. Uh, and I think uh, the, the, the President was very happy that all his members would stick to it and try and uh, try and make it happen with all the disparate groups on the ground. But the clock is really ticking, uh, and he emphasised, and as others did, that unless we see some tangible results from it very quickly, and your piece on, on aid, I mean, aid is still not in getting into Aleppo three days later, unless we get that moving very, very quickly. Uh, first of all, the civilians again lose faith in the ceasefire. And secondly, you know, this is a key part of the ceasefire that Assad should be delivering, mm. and he's not. So there is hope, but uh, we've got to have some movement pretty quickly, otherwise it's going to go the way of all the other ceasefires. Christopher Lee, I understand that Anas Al-Abda wants Britain to help enforce a no-bomb zone. Just explain what the thinking is behind that compared to a no-fly zone. Well, you can fly where you like, um, and you can be opposed... Uh, you can cut an area out and say, right, you, you, you mustn't fly in that area. And if we do, we've got to decide what our rules of engagement are. Nobody has got the guts to have rules of engagement on this, so that's a waste of time. No bombs means you don't go planting bombs in Aleppo during a given, a, a, a given period, unless provoked, etc. That is one of the great difficulties, is actually putting something on, not just on paper, but putting something in an international context that people will not only understand, but they will, will follow. Now, I mean, Hamish now talking about Joe Cox. You go out in the streets of the United Kingdom, people have forgotten who Joe Cox is. You go into the streets of Germany, France, etc. Nobody is much cared, much cared. There's no polling evidence that people much care about a solution in Syria. Mm. They care what's going on but no solution. Now, no solution means there's no pressure on governments to do things. You've actually got, a, at the moment, for example, a battle going on in Washington between Pentagon and, and the State Department 
on on the wording and the promises made with the Russians on how to handle uh, a combined operation, for example, against ISIS. With that That's sort of situation, you have got no political pressure whatsoever, no political pressure, no solution. Hey, Mr. Breton Gordon, just tell us a little bit more about this meeting that took place this week where you spoke. I mean, did anything come out of it? Did you feel there was some progress made in what was said? Well, well, I hope so. I mean, it is uh, sometimes like pushing water uphill. But going on to the no-bomb zone, what I artic articulated on behalf of many groups in Syria um, who are calling for a no-bomb zone is absolutely not a no-fly zone, as Christopher's uh, mentioned. That will not work at all. But we've broken it down into three areas. First of all, we want a no-fly zone for helicopters. It is the helicopters that are dro dropping the chemical weapons, that are dropping napalm and dropping the high explosive, which have killed the vast majority of the half million Syrians in Syria over the last five years. Now, this would be very easy to put in place. And in fact, you know, the, the Royal Navy has the assets and the Royal Air Force the assets in the area to do it ourselves unilaterally at the moment if we wanted to. Mm. Now, second to that, we're calling for an aircraft tracking system where, again, Britain could do this on its own, where we track aircraft that attack hospitals and we name and shame them. And why is that not happening? Is there just not the political will to do so or is it too complicated to get that through? Well, I think a lot of people are thinking about no-fly zones, northern Iraq and the potential to shoot down Russian jets. I think this new proposal actually is getting a, a lot of support amongst, amongst MPs and ministers in, in Parliament. So I'm hoping that... Um, people, again, look at it seriously. Do so you think Russia would agree to their aircraft being tracked? Well, th this is the big issue. Um, they should agree to the helicopter no-fly zone over civilian areas. That doesn't affect them. They say they are not bombing hospitals. Therefore, there should be no reason. They are a member of the UN Security Council. They've signed up to all the various means to be able to deliver peace, and they've signed up to the ceasefire. Now, this is a key thing that is breaking the ceasefire. And they went down. into the Crimea, they went into Ukraine, and everybody knows you do what is very, very useful to do and what, what fits your plan on the day. A lot of these, how many meetings so far? 403 meetings so far between Putin, and oh, sorry, not uh, Putin, the foreign uh, minister of, Lavrov. Of, of Lavrov and, and, and Jack Kerry from the United States, and nothing has been done that gives anything more than a 48-hour pass for peace. And can I, can I just add that the final bit to it, which I think is absolutely key at the moment and we must get on to, and I spoke about it, and, and I think with, with Paddy Ashton as well on Tuesday, is, is getting aid in there. Now, if the Syrians, if the Assad regime are not going to allow aid into Aleppo, then I think we should seriously again think about airdropping it in. The Russians are airdropping food into Daizor and other areas. Um, we could we could do that to start alleviating the suffering so that we can start the main event of getting all the massive amounts of aid in. Because if we don't get food, water and medicines in soon, again, the ceasefire will break because the civilians are, are losing hope by the hour. Christopher. Um, Hamish, tell me one thing. When you, have, uh, when you get an airdrop of, of supplies, medical, food or whatever aid in, who actually controls it on the ground? Well, what a lot of people don't know um, is that within all towns in Syria, they still have councils like we do in the UK, who still try and run amenities, run basic provisions like medical and others. And they are still up and running, even in, in, in eastern Aleppo, for the 600 people under siege. And with my work with the medical charity OSAM, we're in regular daily contact with these people. And they have already agreed to distribute that aid 
to the most needy first mm. um, across their area. So that that is an argument that is often given by people for not doing this, hey, and, and Bre- it doesn't hold any water. In my hey, Mish, I mean, we, we know this truce has been extended by another 48 hours. How positive are you feeling at the moment? I think any day in Syria where there aren't hundreds of deaths, one has to be positive. So, and one has to keep kicking every door and one has to maintain, I think, this, you know, the, the, the positive approach. Otherwise, things are so desperate, you know, as we've heard and as Christopher has articulated, that you, you, you just give up. But having been in Syria many times myself and knowing many Syrians and knowing what the conditions are like there, and crikey, it's, you know, it's only three hours away from where we are at the moment, I think we must strain every nerve and sinew to make sure we help these people because if we don't, we're going to see millions more refugees and millions more foot soldiers for the so-called Islamic State. And I think, you know, as I've described, I think Britain, we could lead the way. We could make a huge difference here without having boots on the ground. Our aircraft can drop aid in. We can track jets bombing hospitals and ultimately we could prevent helicopters dropping barrel bombs that are killing so many people. Hey, Mr. Bretton Gordon, thank you for your time. Still to come, it's 100 years since the first tank went into battle and why the American military is facing an obesity crisis. The President of the EU Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, has called for a European army with its own headquarters. His comments came in a State of the Union address to the European Parliament yesterday. Anthony King is Professor of War Studies at the University of Warwick. Good to speak to you today, Professor. Not everyone's happy about this idea, are they? Particularly the Baltic states. Well, no, quite. I mean, the the Baltic states, I haven't heard a public announcement, but I think we can... uh, 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 infer that they would not be delighted about it. Um, it's certainly an interesting timing and a quite controversial announcement. Mm. Uh, aside from those countries, what about those in the EU, EU who see themselves as, as neutral, Ireland, Austria, Sweden, Finland? Well, uh, the thing about this announcement is this. I, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of misinformation about these EU developments. Um, the prospect of developing a genuine EU capability under NATO, whether Juncker announces it or not, is actually would be a really positive thing. And in terms of those neutral countries, if you look over the last 15 years, um, the EU, first of all, the European security defence policy and the common and then the common uh, security and defence policy has actually been a way of uh, incorporating those neutral countries or formerly neutral countries into NATO, the sort of peripheries of NATO. So actually, in terms of the integration of the neutral countries, um, the EU has worked in a small way, but quite effectively. Mm. And what about this idea of a headquarters in Brussels? Well, I mean, uh, at a certain point, one's eyes glaze over. Um, <laughs> if, if you look at uh, the history of the European initiative since about 2000, when this, when this project really started getting going again... Um, EU countries are brilliant and European countries are brilliant at having a great idea of setting up another command node. And you can see the proliferation of these command nodes in NATO and in the EU. I guarantee you the one thing that Europe doesn't need anymore is more headquarters. Mm. Um, What it requires is genuine military capabilities at the national level. Now, the question to ask is, does this EU uh, initiative that the Germans and the French have announced and that Juncker has now endorsed... Does it, is it going to encourage Germany and other countries to spend more money on their forces? I am doubtful. Mm. Christopher, I mean, Jean-Claude Juncker really, really likes this idea, doesn't he? Why well, is he... Well, of course he does. He needs so- it. 
I mean, mm. look at the state of the EU at the moment. It needs some, it needs some big idea, don't they, at the moment? Um, I think what it, the important bit about this is, is look who's, who's going to back it. Germany, France, maybe, etc. After all, it's been around since... Uh, when was it, Anthony? Was it 98 or something like that? It was, it's been around since Blair well, and, uh, and Chirac, hasn't it? The rebooted European and defence security policy really started to get going after 2003. And it must be said, there have been some small minor missions done by the EU. I mean, mm. let us remember that the Atlanta operation, counter-piracy and the Horn of Africa, is run out of Northwood, and the commander is the Commandant General Royal Marine. So, you know, there are some... There, it has contributed around the margins, but that is a word that has to be emphasized. I mean, there are about, there are about what, 16 operations now that involve... Uh, completely, and completely, Christopher. I mean, we're talking, you know, good operations, marginal, subordinate to, and in many cases, requiring the support so, of NATO. Okay. But if you, if you go back to the sort of the econo economics of this, for example, suppose you've got, let's suppose you've got an EU organisation, and you've got a NATO organisation which would have to go with it, because the command systems would have to uh, have to interchange or whatever. Um, you can imagine a EU country saying, look, why have I got to keep up to a certain standard? Uh, I can't actually do both. My, my, my finances on the EU operation, which is more pertinent to my electorate, for example, is quite different from what it might be from NATO. NATO would therefore uh, suffer. We'd actually get back to where okay. we were in 1949 with so, the Americans say, why don't you Europeans just get on with Professor it? Professor King, can they coexist, an EU army and NATO? And if so, do you think it's going to become a reality? They can certainly co coexist. It is a reality, and it will remain one. But the EU, any EU army or EU force, will be extremely small. On the benign. So, end would it be the, relevant? Uh, in genuine strategic terms, in my humble opinion, no. Shall we leave it there then? Well, I, it's a good place to leave it, I think. Yes, <laughs> Professor Anthony King, it's good to speak to you. Professor Anthony King from Warwick University. Uh, Christopher, are some other stories around this week, and the government has responded to a report by the Defence Select Committee on relations with Russia. Um, just tell us a bit more about what the Defence Select Committee put forward and the response. OK, well, the first thing is that, that Russia is, once more since the Cold War, the threat for Europe at the moment. And it doesn't matter whether it is or not, but that's how it's seen at the moment. The uh, MOD has got 40... Russian specialists. One of the criticisms from the uh, or, or from the Commons Defence Committee is they may have forty specialists, but those specialists aren't necessarily top line and that that good. They don't work, for example, the same way as the Foreign Office do, all Russian speakers, etc. And that's quite separate. Mm -hmm. Also, um, their assessment of what the the Russian ambition is 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 not very uh, cogent because it doesn't take in a lot of information that's coming from outside uh, uh, and not from themselves, and therefore it proves yet again, as far as the committee is concerned, that there may be 40 specialists, but they may not be the spe so best specialists. how has the government reacted to that kind of criticism then? Well, it's the, 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 the government saying, look, we, we, we are building up our specialist needs. Mm. And it's, it's, the, it's the usual case, you know, oh, well, the, the report was written some time ago or the evidence was taken some time ago. It wasn't actually. It was taken <laughs> earlier this year. They're also critical about uh, the position of offering NATO membership to Russia and the effect that that might have on the enemy when you see two, two allies who are not complete necessarily allies. Yeah, but go to, go to guys that really know 
the practical side of it in NATO, even go down to Mons and see it from the military point of view. Uh, the Russians have a seat in NATO headquarters in the council. Um, it is much better to have those guys inside the tent, and it's as simple as that. Mm. And it works when they're inside the tent, and it's as simple as that. And if you go back to 1950s-odd, you'll find that Khrushchev actually asked to become a member of NATO, he said, because it's much better that we should all join together in Europe. Now, Britain and Argentina have agreed to cooperate more closely on trade and security around the Falkland Islands. It's being described as the first positive development between the two countries this century. I mean, it's quite significant, isn't it? It is. Once uh, Chris, uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, uh, the, uh, the last president, left Argentina or left, left the job in Argentina, new thinking could come in. Uh, you wouldn't immediately have a meeting and people would stand up and say, well, the Malvinas belong to us, and then the British would stand up and say, oh no, they don't. Um, but what is interesting is some of the things are going to do there's going to be a cooperation on transport, and transport means the different ways of getting in and out of the Falklands, where you can go to in, in South America. There's a second part of it which is important, and that is the cooperation in fisheries, fisheries protection, as well as fishing, and also uh, sources from the seabed. Mm. But I think one of the most uh, poignant uh, sort of uh, developments here, is the Argentinians have saying, can the British help them find Argentina soldiers or identify Argentina soldiers that are, buri uh, that are buried in Darwin Cemetery from and, the 1982 and, war? That, I think, is the most... And the response is yes, is it? Yeah, yeah. That, I think, is the, is, is the most in, uh, important and long-lasting... Uh, uh, a result of this meeting yesterday. Mm. Let's just talk briefly about Russian parliamentary elections coming this weekend. Okay, it's, it is it is Parliament Duma. Uh, Four hundred and fifty guys up for for re-election. It's just really about half. But why, why, uh, well, why should we be so fascinated? Well, what's fascinating? Well, you see, because if you if you again come back to this, we were talking about the MOD and the Foreign Office, Russia watching. Uh, you want to see who has the influence. And the people sort of float up to the top. It's a bit mm. like sort so of. So you're oil saying and water that these stuff. 40 MOD people should be watching this very closely. They shouldn't go home at night. I mean, these guys should be kept in. The I'm same glad life. you're not my boss. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was. Um, <laughs> you may think so, but I've got news no, listen, for you. Listen, um, the, the, but what's fascinating is you go to, uh, looking at sort of photographs and reading the newspapers in, uh, in in Moscow. It's not a big deal there, and one of the reasons is that the big deal is waiting in 2018. And that's when Putin comes up for re-election. A replica of a First World War tank is on display in central London today, a hundred years after tanks arrived on the battlefields of Europe. Some German soldiers are reported to have turned and fled when the machines first appeared on the Somme battlefield, changing warfare forever. Well, David Willey is curator of the Tank Museum and joins us from Horse Guards Parade. Good to speak to you today, David Willey. Can you describe the scene around you where you are now? Well, it's very hot. There's um, quite a number of uh, news crews and uh, obviously all the publicity that's drawn, well, a fair number of, of London's come out actually at the moment. And uh, not only have we got the replica First World War tank looking very um, stately on Horse Guards Parade, but we've also got the Challenger 2. So the current British Army tank is next to it because one of the points of bringing it today is not just to look back and say, look, you know, 100 years ago, these were the first guys to use the tank in action. But to also make the point, you know, it's still got a continuing role in the British Army. Mm, just let us look back for a moment to the First World War. Why was the tank invented in the first place? 
it, it, it's an answer to a very specific problem on the First World War battlefield. How on earth is the British Army, the French Army, what's left of the Belgian Army, how on earth are we going to push that occupying army of the Germans out of France and Belgium? You know, they're the ones, they capture the best ground, they dig themselves in, set up their machine guns, barbed wire. Um, we're losing too many men in frontal attacks, so we've got to think of something new. And mm-hmm. it's a, you know, I genuinely say a bit of British genius. We come up with this idea of uh, something to cross the battlefield, crush the wire, and let our soldiers follow on. And, and what was life expectancy like, and what was life like in those first tanks? So the crews on the, on the very first tank attack, there was 49 tanks um, that actually made it across to France. Um, crews relatively poorly trained. They haven't had much time. Some of them had only been in France two weeks. Of those 49 tanks, only nine of them actually made to, to the German front line or through the front line. Mm. Crew conditions inside those tanks are appalling. You know, eight guys in a very stuffy space, engine in the middle, very hot, pumping out exhaust fumes all around the place. So um, it, it's, it's not a nice environment at all. And this is well before health and safety comes into play. The armour plate will stop a bullet, but not much else. So mm. um, they are crude, but they still have that shock effect on the German army, and they are very frightening things. You know, just even like modern armouries today, it has a, a fear factor all about it. You mentioned the, ta- the Challenger 2 uh, tank, the tank of today, and it's going to be extended, I believe, until 2035. Um, how relevant, how needed are they by the British army? Well, we're, we're, I'm, I obviously come from the tank museum. I can't talk on, on behalf of the whole army, but the <laughs> point that we always make at the, at the tank museum is quite simply that every time we think we don't need a tank, we find we do. And like at the end of the First World War, we were chopping up tanks because we would never fight a war like that again. At the end of World War II, there was an issue about, you know, if one guy with a bazooka or Panzerfaust could knock out a tank, they're too vulnerable. Uh, 1980s, it was going to be attack helicopters. And yet, for whatever reason tanks seem to be this adaptable weapon that mm. we still carry on using them and look at what the rest of the world are doing you know the turkey's building its own tank russia's building a new version so us to upgrade our tanks to keep up to date um you know challenger 2 is a fantastic bit of kit you know it's battle winning weapon it's proven in combat we just need to make sure it doesn't lag behind you think it and might we keep them there well, at the moment, there's issues with them. You know, some of the parts are getting very, very hard to find. Some of the technology on it is now dropping behind um, the current threat levels. So we do need to invest money in it. The, the point I'd always point to anyone that comes to the museum is, I think we'd be a very foolish country if we think we're never going to need our tanks again. Mm. The army realises that. The rest of the world as well. You know, you don't have to look around. You look at what's going on in Ukraine. Look at how tanks are being used. You know, we definitely are going to need them in our, our toolbox. Christopher, that, that point that David Willey was pointing, that when you do away with something, then you realise you really need it. You could, could you argue that about pretty much any piece of equipment with the British military? Um, you, you can, but you see, there'll always be people to argue about it because they're thinking... We think, what what I'll be replacing it with? Can we replace it at the same time? You know, it's going to happen with the tank. I mean, Ajax is coming on, so don't you know? Don't think, well, it's all going to be terrible if if, mm. if Challenger Two doesn't come on. But you've got to remember something else about um, uh, the, the reason for tanks in the first place. They were to get between trenches. Mm. That was the way you got between trenches. You could do it because you got an internal combustion engine. There were agricultural uh, 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 vehicles. The other thing, there's nothing like a tank to hold ground once you've got it. David Willey, just a final word from you. Your favourite tank? 
Um, well, we're very lucky at the museum. We've got literally the first tank ever, the first prototype tank, Little Willie. No one else has got it. Makes us special. We're the people that invented it, don't forget. So um, hmm. I have to say Little Willie, and uh, the fact it's my surname as well. <laughs> it, well it kind forget, of shines quite well. Hey, hang on. Uh, don't forget the Lincolns. What about Big Willie? Mm, OK, listen, David Willie, curator of the Tank Museum at Bovington in Dorset. Thank you for your time. It's good to speak to you today. Now, the US military is losing its battle against obesity. Pentagon data obtained by the Military Times shows that almost 8% of America's troops are overweight compared with just 1% 15 years ago. Well, let's talk to former Royal Marine triple amputee and now peak performance coach, Mark Ormrod. Good to speak to you today, Mark. Um, how, what do you make of these figures? Um, well, if you know, it's always difficult when people publish these figures because you read it in black and white and you, know, you automatically assume that it is 100% accurate but I think, first of all, you need to really clarify what they mean by overweight. Mm. You know, are the guys lifting heavier weights, doing more yomping, you know, heavy weighted walking and, and just getting bigger in size? Or are they, you know, eating the wrong foods, not exercising enough and being unhealthily yeah. uh, overweight? I mean, the, the the implications of this particular report is that actually the, it is related to the BMI index and that the chain, the food, the con, the kind of food they've been eating. And the one U.S. senior NCO is quoted in the article saying Afghanistan has changed military fitness because there's been a lot more walking um, rather than running, which is what was done in the past. Oh, okay, um, there's also a lot more sweating uh, out in Afghanistan than there is in in you know most other places that guys are deployed, but. You know, my opinion, uh, for what it's worth, is that your physical fitness is, is your personal responsibility. You know, whether you're in Afghanistan, if you're in Norway, if you're in the UK, wherever you are in the world, there, there's always a way and a means to keep on top of it. Mm. And as a professional soldier, you should pride yourself um, that you get to wear that uniform and that, you know, you should keep those standards wherever you are. Mm. Christopher? Uh, if you go back to 1979-1980, there was a report came out in, in the Pentagon, uh, and they were looking. Ba they based it on uh, 101 Airborne uh, and the sort of training and the diets, etc. And they decided that the, what these guys were doing, they were stuffing themselves with protein, basically, uh, and they got to have sort of thick muscles, thick necks, thick skins, the whole thing. And of course, once you get off the training routine, then that turns to fat. And this is what they were arguing. They were arguing when the guys were at peak fitness because they knew what they were supposed to sustain, and that was an image which they thought worked for the military. Mm. And that's not really gone away, and that goes back to 1980. Let's, uh, Mark, let's just talk about briefly the kind of food that you had in Afghanistan. How healthy was it? I have no idea. <laughs> um, we, you know, we were on the front line, so we survived a lot of time on ration packs. Um, we got fresh rations every now and again Camp Bastion was it good for your health I, I didn't spend any time there I think I spent two days in Camp Bastion and then was flown out to mm. one of the Ford operating bases mm. but from from the brief time I did spend in there um, what what shocked me was actually you know they, they had coffee shops Tim Horton's coffee shops they had a pizza hut I believe and a <laughs> Burger King um, you know and that's that's one side of Afghanistan and then me and my friends were living in holes, getting bombed every night, eating ration packs. Mm. So, um, but again, it's, it's personal responsibility. You know, the the food may be there, the bad food, but you don't have to eat it. Mm. How, how fit do you think the British military is? As a whole, I think they're doing fine. Mm. Um, there are, you know, there's always individuals who, you know, aren't 
up to that standard and, and that could be for a number of reasons it may be health reasons um, you know they could have issues that they're, they're working out and dealing with but you know I, I really you know as this this is probably going to cause a lot of controversy but I really think it is down to the individual um, and that's there are not no controversial good... well, fair enough isn't it fair comment oh, I think so I tell you, you what know, you get into a ship though and that is a very tight environment, and the sort of diet you get is a tight environment diet. Mm. But i tell you something. Uh, probably the most famous image from Bastion of Afghanistan mm. is 32 years old today, mm. uh, and that is uh, Harry Wales. It's going to be cake. It's going to be cake. And it's going to be cake, because he's one of the greatest cake eaters in yeah. Windsor Castle, I promise you. Mark, Mark just interesting, um, you're now a peak performance coach. I'm just wondering, when you were serving, how, how did you feel when you came across... Uh, senior ranking people who didn't have a very good BMI body index. Not mes- perhaps the best example. And yeah, it, that funny you say that. You know, that was actually one of my one of my pet peeves. You know, because I always <laughs> believe that if you if you're in a position of authority and you have people that look up to you, then you should always lead by example. And just straight away, the first thing we notice about people is obviously the way they look. Mm. And if their belly's hanging over their trousers and that, you know, they look scruffy and unfit and, <laughs> you know, what I'd call a scram bag, mm. then <laughs> not, I'm not really going to want to follow that guy anywhere Mark, or, or do what he says. Mark, it's just you as well, have to it's follow just him. As well be you've left. Behind. <laughs> we must leave it there. Mark, great to speak to you. I think the message has got out there. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Gurkha's lose test case for equal.